Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then that requires a holistic approach. You try getting that on a front page headline. Whereas if you say stabbings increase by X percent because of X percent decrease in stop and search, it doesn't matter that every piece of research that has been done in depth shows that there is no correlation between increasing stop and search and reducing violent crime. It's a snappy headline. It doesn't matter that it melts under further investigation because there won't be any further investigation. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And today we're joined by Ash Sarka, who is the contributing editor of Navarra Media. And this conversation could not be more poignant, so let's get straight into this on Stop and Search. Brought to you by Acast, in association with UK, brought to you by Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining me. And as I said, we're going to be joined by Ash Sarka. She's been on Newsnight. Uh, she's been on Question Time. She's hit headlines for using the word bro in a political conversation. We'll get into that, trust me. And she's just so on point. She gets the topics that we're going to be discussing. So stop and search, the harm in communities. There's so much we're going to get into. And this has taken on a whole new relevance as well because we recorded this in September of last year at the end of it. And... As you can imagine, all the conversation revolved around topics of drug policy, race relations, disparity and stop and search powers. And they've taken on a whole new meaning over the last few weeks. We know that these things have been harmful. We know they've been bad. But we're going to have a bigger conversation about it now. And thankfully, Ash Sarkar's there to give us some very, very good points. And an apology from me as well. My vo- my voice sounds atrocious in this because I had a cold and a pretty bad one at the time. So please overlook that and focus on Ash because she's the one that carries this conversation. And thank you so much, Ash, for joining us on Stop and Search. So let's get into this. So I'm sat here with Ash and I, I can't thank you enough for doing this because you took a right punt on us because you didn't know anything about us. You just saw us on Twitter and went, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Well, no, because I saw, I think Nish Kumar did That's your it, yeah. podcast and I'm obviously familiar with the work of Release in whose office we're sitting now and on the issue of policing and drugs legislation it's something which I find myself getting more and more incensed about so it's nice to have an opportunity to like rant about it Uh, and can I get you to do a quick introduction of yourself it's always better when when you do it yourself I feel yeah Uh, my name is Ash Sarka I'm a contributing editor at Novara Media I'm an Aries I'm five foot two I support Tottenham Hotspur uh, how much more do you need? Is that, yep, is that that's enough? perfect. Cool. Also, and you're a question time panellist, which is kind of weird because I got Nish after he did question time. He had an argument with Melanie Phillips over Stop and Search and the McPherson Report. And you were just on question time. So you get us when we're most vulnerable, when we've it been through the ringer way, and then the self-esteem is low enough that you're like, come here, come to the release I like to office. think this is the, the green room of question time where you can kind of come and chill and get the get all the kind of things off your chest you need to. People are a lot nicer here than in the green room. Yes, they time. are. In releases offices, they are fantastic. Because um, you hit the headlines after question time just purely on the fact you used the word bro, didn't you? This, is that, this is a weird first question, but 
is that almost indicative of the state we've got ourselves into now that we've got so much going on in the world and yet people focus on that aspect? It's because they're looking for a way to say this person doesn't belong in this space without saying this person doesn't belong in this space. So when you've got someone who uses a word like bro and uses that word very naturally and it indicates a certain class and socioeconomic and racial position, that means that you can say, aha, the fact that they've used this word demonstrates that they're not meant to be here. Whereas I can give you a much longer and more legitimate list of why I shouldn't be there and I'm quite happy to do so. Um, so that's why the, the Express covered it in the way that they did. What for me I found most interesting was the reaction of the panelists when I said it, which was the sort of amused disbelief. And the fact that there was this sort of, you know, trilling along the line uh, and, you know, then Camilla Tomini is like, dudes, is that it, to me, demonstrated that there are people who aren't used to talking about politics outside of a professional context. Whereas for me, I talk about politics all the time with my family, all the time with my friends. And the way in which you talk about it is you use the word bro, you interject, you make jokes, you present politics as something which is alive, because it is, rather than a set of debating points. And question time is surely supposed to be about presenting policies and politics to the layman. So when you've got someone that's managing to do that, and then they get derided because of certain words they use, surely that goes against the whole point of the programme. I mean, I think that most political programming has got about as much integrity as Crofts. <laughs> like, genuinely, it's not actually about communicating to people the issues that are affecting them on a day-to-day basis. In general, political programming is a way to set out the different stalls of various factions or tendencies and to perform political debate in front of a national audience. And then it's a way of reassuring yourself that you've broken out the bubble. No, you haven't. In lots of ways, you've reinscribed the boundaries between bubble and world. Because the thing that I always think about is what's outside of the questions asked at question time. Because the questions are handed in and then they're selected. And then I always wonder about, you know, the hundred odd questions which didn't get selected because it didn't fit in with what was in the news cycle that week. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Because I don't know, you work in the media yourself. Uh, How much do we rely on the media to present the facts of the day and the policies of the day that we should be discussing? I mean, I think we do and we don't. One of the things that I always like to do is ask people who don't work in politics or the media what they feel about politics and what cuts through and what doesn't. And what you realise is that, one, in particular, lobby journalism, so the people who are in and out of the Palace of Westminster every day, is that they're people who think that they're normal and they feel that they are presenting what is a common sense or normal analysis of what's going on on in Westminster. No, they are not normal. They are not normal people. They are very weird people who either got bullied too much or not enough at school. I'm not sure which one who then have decided that they decided that they are the political conscience of the rest of the country. It's actually so divorced from reality and people can detect that there is a difference between what is covered in the media and what they see in their day-to-day lives. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't consume media or that things don't cut through. Particular phrases, emotional tones, vibes cut through. Um, But this idea of the, like, day-to-day minutiae being followed, you know, religiously by people, that's... A sort of outgrowth of Westminster narcissism. I, I quite often bring up the point that I'm not from London so when I do come into London you get to see a very different world especially you know, I, I, I don't know if it's fortunate or not but I get to frequent Whitehall and, and the Houses of Parliament. Um, it's a lovely building but <laughs> I don't know about the rest of it and it just it's not at all representative of where I come from. You know the questions that are, and the conversations that are going on there just aren't happening where I'm from. Do you find the same? But in a weird way, actually, that's not true either because Palace of Westminster is staffed with catering staff, with porters, with security guards. You've got all of the 
cafes and the Pretz and like the Itsu and the Cafe Nero, again, staff, many of whom are migrant workers, all of whom are working class, who obviously do not live in that borough and live in a different borough. And you've also got a huge number of rough sleepers in Westminster who politicians walk past every single day. And so in a strange way, it still is a microcosm of what's going on in this country in terms of wealth inequality, in terms of precarious uh, contracts, in terms of low wages, in terms of homelessness. And that's all there. And it's around the Palace of Westminster, except because that's not considered as being part of politics proper, because it's outside of the pony show, it's outside of the artifice and the pantomime, that somehow doesn't seep through to the conscience of most politicians or indeed journalists moving through those spaces. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, that's, that's a, a brilliant point. I don't think it's ever been made that, yeah, Westminster's just not made up of politicians. Mm-mm. There's so much more to it. Um, and you'll have to forgive me as well, because as you might hear, I've got a cold. I might have to re-record my bits. <laughs> and I'm also very conscious about chewing a locket as I'm doing this because I realise it's rattling around my teeth. You know what? I can't hear the locket too much. No. You just sound slightly bunged up, but <laughs> other than that, the locket's fine. Um, so let's, let's get uh, to, the, to the reasons that, that thankfully you're on the podcast because we, we've just spoken to me from Release, who is a massive fan of yours because we've all said uh, behind your back that you managed to get things across so well in the media that... that a lot of times just doesn't get bought up so for example you're very very good on stop and search powers and knife crime um i was reading articles on the way up on the train and you put a brilliant quote from uh, professor angela davis and i hate reading stuff out but i'm going to so uh you quoted in your guardian piece prisons do not disappear social problems they disappear people and i just that's i've never heard that quote before and it's a perfect summary of the criminal justice system I mean, the thing that people need to realize is that prisons create more of the problem that they are purportedly meant to address. So when you build more prisons, it doesn't mean that you actually reduce overcrowding. What happens is is that you've got a criminal justice system, which is more than willing to just pump bodies into it. Um, In the UK, we've got one of the worst recidivism uh, reoffending rates in Europe, and it's way higher than when you compare to Sweden or to Norway, where you've got a very different sort of prison culture and a different uh, criminal justice system more generally. Um, And in prisons, and I think this overlaps with drug policy in a particularly um, important way, is that when you're punishing someone with a prison sentence for possession with intent to supply, for instance, are you telling me that People can't get drugs in prison. In fact, addictions worsen in prison because that's the only way you can deal with being in such a hellish setting. Again, if you use prison as, you know, a solution to violent crime, well, you've not actually dealt with violent crime because prisons, particularly the ones which are overcrowded and particularly ones which are understaffed, have huge amounts of violence in them because when you lower the number of prison guards um you just end up with these horrific informal hierarchies taking the place of that so i think that when you address the question of prison abolition it's not a simple question of de-staffing it's what are staff for and what are they there for just checking because with the hoover's just gone on next door <laughs> so i'm just checking you can't pick up on that it's actually the sound of michael gove just like doing lines upstairs <laughs> we've actually that's a good point because sitting right beside you is a pack of playing cards that release have given us um and each one of them has got a quote on them from a politician and you were just looking through them weren't you and i think you quite like those cards that are that are suddenly uh part of your life yeah no no because for me also the language which with which politicians talk about their drug taking past i find hilarious because even when they're being honest about something they've done they're still lying so when michael gove is like when i did cocaine in the 90s it's one of the biggest regrets of my life i think about it every day no it's not you did coke you had a great time you didn't regret it it's now just awkward because you're a front bench politician you know ditto when people talk about you know i took 
cannabis. No, you didn't take cannabis. You, you smoked some weed. That, like lots of people do. And you don't regret it. Um, the only person who I think lied about having taken drugs is Andrea Leadsom. When during the summer in the Tory leadership race, everyone and their aunts, you know, oh, I had a bang lassie. Oh, I did opium. And then you've got Andrea Leadsom being like, I too have taken uh, the marijuana. And I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. Who gave you weed? didn't happen it's, it's weird it's gone full circle isn't it is that before it was you know it was the stuff a scandal for politicians to come out and say they've taken drugs but now Adrian Lesson, as you said interjecting with that just to kind of claw back some credibility almost it's an easy way for liars to look honest <laughs> by owning up to something which has no consequences I love the fact as well we've turned a hoover into a good political point that's just genius isn't it? see that's why they pay me the mediocre bucks <laughs> <laughs> but how, how do you feel because as we said between the, the hoover context and the cars that you got next to you um politicians are now being quite flippant about their drug use but also that locks on to, to how flippant they are about drug policy they're still choosing to ramp up the rhetoric still saying that you know today we're recording this at a time that the Tory conference is going on pretty patel's just said she's going to come down hard on county lines and all this sort of thing Surely the two don't marry up. Surely that the politicians do know that we need to do something about this and what the current scheme of things isn't working. Well, what if you take a step back from it, I think it gives you a very clear picture of what political culture is like around drugs, which is that, one, everyone knows that there is such a thing as safe recreational use of psychoactive substances. There's also safe medicinal use of psychoactive substances. But the main point here is mostly recreational use. And we all know that because Michael Gove did coke and look, he's, you know, what was it? Cabinet minister for the Duchy of Lancaster. All right. You know, he's, he's done all right for himself. You know, people at uni took a pill or when you smoked your first joint yeah you might have like pulled a whitey but you've you've ended up all right there's such a thing as safe recreational use and then there's drugs as it features in the political imagination which is as a signifier for all that is dangerous and underclass and exploitative and down low and dirty and wrong and evil so you have this language which is an overlap between how we understand class and how we demonize working class people in particular and also the moral content that drugs are somehow inherently shameful, they're wrong, they're evil. And so that's where you can see this little shift in rhetoric because now if you notice Boris Johnson, Pretty Patel, they talk about middle-class bourgeois cocaine users in Muswell Hill and trying to nail them on the hypocrisy grounds and saying, you know, you are driving these exploited working-class kids to knife crime with your coke habits. It doesn't matter that County Lines actually refers to uh, people with, uh, you know, problematic use, you know, addictive use who are on low incomes being driven out of urban centers and into, you know, the sort of towns and seaside towns uh, that surround big cities. And that's what the county lines economy is appealing to. So it doesn't matter that it's completely um, misleading to describe the problem in this way. And so when you then look at all of that, which is the combination of hypocrisy, of social disciplinarianism, and also that moral content and the moral shaming that goes along with drugs. The situation we've got now is a perfect reflection of our messed up thinking when it comes to drugs. Do you feel as conscious? Is it a point that the media and the politics are just getting intertwined to such a degree that it sounds good to put it on middle class users all of a sudden as opposed to going for the part of the expression low-hanging fruit of you know people that are vulnerable and homeless i think it's also because after a decade of austerity and don't forget about the way that austerity was propped up by a culture industry of like little britain vicky pollard you know shameless that kind of real demonization benefit street is that people are a bit sick of poor people being demonized for being poor and I think particularly with the Brexit vote, which has been interpreted as a backlash by white working class people in particular, you can't have a political popular culture, which is 
so obviously sneering or denigrating. So it's sort of now being like, oh, these metropolitan elites. But it's still two sides of the same dishonest conversation. How do we go about addressing that? What's, what is the best way of using conversations that we have on the everyday street and also the media? How do we get out of stigmatising people uh, and, and addressing this correctly that, as you said, we're all drug users in some mm. way or another? How do we go about that? So I think you've got to do two things, and one's at the level of policy and the other is at the level of culture. And I think one way in which we change culture is by having honest conversations about drugs. And one of the things I try and do is be honest about recreational drug use. Like, yes, I've taken drugs and yes, I've had a lot of fun. You know, what do I regret? New rave, mostly. Um, and, you know, have there been times where drug use has led to me being at risk? Also, yes. And that's the sticky point of that honest conversation. Um, and the reason why I try and be honest about it is because I want to create the space for other people to be honest too. And then at least we can have a starting point of having a conversation about drugs, which has got a basis in reality. And then the second thing you've got to do is change political culture and create incentives for that political culture to change. And so I think one of those incentives is about what is the criminal justice system for? Is it about pointlessly punishing people in a way which doesn't actually deal with a social problem or is it about making people safer which means tackling social problems in a way which you know ironically maybe doesn't involve the criminal justice system if it's the latter then I think you end up utilizing uh, the political capital generated by having those honest conversations about drugs, those honest conversations about drug use, you start thinking about, well, you know, do we want to punish, in particular, working class kids who have been screwed over by gentrification, by increasing rates of child poverty, who've probably been traumatized and exploited themselves? Do we want to punish them with prison for essentially feeding a habit which isn't in itself wrong? Um, and so that's why I think you've got to work at it on two levels. I think, unfortunately, uh, the Labour Party is not where it should be on drugs policy, far from it. I think that it's still very wedded to that social disciplinarian tone. And if you'll notice uh, the reaction of Labour politicians when the whole Tory leadership stuff was to come out was to create a binary between the sort of, you know, bourgeois, decadent drug takers of, you know, the rich and the wealthy and decent, ordinary working class people who obviously don't do that kind of thing. And so you have, you know, Barry Gardner on Andrew Marr being like, I have never snorted, I have never smoked, I have never... And that's just like, okay, all right, Barry, calm down. And maybe that's all true. Are you telling me that like rave culture wasn't driven by working class people who also like to get wavy or like the school that I went to didn't involve like working class people like having a spliff. We have to get rid of this sort of knee jerk moral condemnation of taking psychoactive substances. I'm not saying that then you've got to do the other thing, which is, you know, well, if everyone's got high all the time, the world would be great. No, there'd be more acoustic guitars at parties and, I, you know, I would end up killing someone. Um, but let's have a conversation which is reflective of just how much psychoactive substances permeate our social lives, because they do. See, I, I can't endorse that message. As as a guitarist, <laughs> I have to say yes to guitars. Yes yeah. to guitars at parties. Absolutely. Like, no, I don't. That's where I believe in a, an authoritarian state. Like, Crack down. You know, abolish your prisons apart from for people that pull out acoustic guitars <laughs> at parties. How about electric? Is it, or is that just kind of the gateway theory? Yeah, the gateway theory. That's a, that, that's a gateway. Uh, but gateway you, make, you make a good point, though, is that it does surprise us, the people that work in drug law reform, that Labour haven't really stepped up to the plate. But obviously Labour is, is a party movement. So, you know, I, I don't envy the way that, that they have to manoeuvre that super tanker. And I think you've also got to remember that Labour has its origins in the temperance movement as well. So as well as sort of being, you know, the product of, you know, uh, the organised Labour movement, there has always been this element of, you know, the 
organized slightly upper echelon of the working class which overlaps with a disciplinarian approach to psychoactive substances in this case it was alcohol you've also got i think a split in what corbinism is about so one set of people thinks that corbinism is simply about replenishing public services right that austerity cut them away so what you have to do is is just pour funding into them so if there are fewer police because of austerity you then have more police if you have not enough prison spaces because of austerity you then have more prison spaces and so it's not really changing what the state is about and that's the easiest thing to message isn't it right you know you're less safe because there are fewer cops and if you had more cops you would be more safe um and then the other side of it is that overlap between uh, democratic socialism, um, libertarian socialism, and the idea of you don't just nationalize stuff, you uh, democratize the economy more generally. And you've got this idea of wanting to fundamentally transform what the state is for. And for me, that's where drugs legislation fits in because I think that the minute you start changing drugs legislation you open up much deeper questions about the function of policing okay just to kind of reiterate we've got some ambient noise because we're in the hub of drug policy central with <laughs> as you can hear in the kitchen next to us there's all sorts of conversations we probably shouldn't capture those actually it might be like the, the war room that we shouldn't be privy to but you, again you make a fantastic point that you bring up policing because one of the things that both parties have addressed at the moment is the lack of police numbers. And again, in your uh, Guardian article that I mentioned earlier, uh, you mentioned the fact that we shouldn't be completely anchored to the belief that we need to get more police involved. There are other things that we can do within the drop-down menu. So can you can you kind of lay out what your Guardian piece was about? So I wrote this Guardian piece um, maybe a couple of years ago now, and it was when Labour were announcing 10,000 more cops. And I just thought it was tremendously unimaginative. Now... From a cynical perspective, someone might just say, look, they're just saying anything to get their foot in the door, get into government, and then they can do the really transformative thing. Maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. The problem with that is that it entrenches very reactionary views of policing in the public imagination. For me, the issue is, of course, there is a relationship between fewer police and an increase in violent crime. And that is because when all the other services have been completely cut to ribbons and they've been cut to ribbons for a lot longer than the police were being cut to ribbons and you've got more powers uh, placed in the hands of police to deal with social problems, in particular mental health, in particular the social symptoms of poverty and inequality, then yes, cutting the police makes a difference. But you don't actually deal with those problems by increasing the number of police. You've then got to look at things like early intervention in which you link up child protection services, healthcare services, and education to actually target support to families when they need it before a point of crisis. And research shows that that is the most effective use of state resources if you want to change the course of someone's life. The other thing that I think is really key is in the 1980s, there was a huge shift in terms of moving away powers from mental health care professionals to the police. Now, at that time, I'm not saying that mental health care was good or it, that it wasn't coercive. It was also, you know, deeply traumatizing for people that went through that system. But when you've got powers of section put in the hands of police and they're sometimes the first point of contact for people who are at a crisis point with their mental health, I think that entrenches the problem and makes it worse. The first point of contact between someone who is suffering from mental health issues and the state should be a doctor or a psychiatric nurse who's in the community or a social worker. So then what you've got is a pathway to care rather than a pathway to incarceration. It's, it just makes complete sense, doesn't it? But so what holds us back? Is it costs? Is it just, again, media rhetoric? Why don't we do these kind of sensible things? Well, you must be able to remember during the New Labour era that there were all these moral panics about prisons being too comfortable and it was they've got a playstation it's supposed to be a punishment so actually when you try and do this stuff there is a reactionary backlash and it's because a, the public conversation hasn't happened 
in the way that it needs to about prisons, about policing. And there is, I think, an attempt to have it around stop and search in particular. And I think that's very, very good. But that's the wedge. And you've now got to open the whole door, right? Then you've got to think about the way in which policing powers, even if you take stop and search out of the equation, still disproportionately target working class communities, working class communities of color, and deepen the very social problems that they're meant to be addressing. Again, perfect point. This is a good segue into stop and search because again, Beelin releases offices, they've done a lot of work on this. And we know unequivocally that the disparity rates of stop and search are awful. You know, we know that people of color are getting stop and search far more than people of, uh, that have got, uh, that are white. And it's just how, have we let this get this far? Is it, again, just that we've been hands-off, we've not had the conversations and, and people aren't being heard? It's because when there is diffusion of responsibility for a phenomenon like an increase in violent crime, there are multiple causes for it. The main one is increasing child poverty um, and that happening at the same time that support services for children who grow up in impoverished households have been cut away. But it's not just any one thing. It's not just youth centers. It's also schools and increasing class sizes. It's not just schools and increasing class sizes. It's the fact that, you know, perhaps if they're, you know, looked after children, which means known to local authorities, that that um, avenue for support and intervention has been cut back as well. Um, you know, it's also the fact that you've got gentrification breaking up communities, so support networks um, are in tatters. It means there's, you know, less of a sense of community if you've got to move house every six months or a year. Um, all of these things point to diffuse responsibility, and then that requires a holistic approach. You try getting that on a front page headline, whereas if you say stabbings increase by X percent because of X percent decrease in stop and search, it doesn't matter that... Every piece of research that has been done in depth shows that there is no correlation between increasing stop and search and reducing violent crime. It's a snappy headline. It doesn't matter that it melts under further investigation because there won't be any further investigation. And it's good for the Tories because you can just shift powers over to the police. Doesn't cost more. Police, actually, that's kind of one of the public services they would want to fund anyway. And boom, they look tough. They look authoritarian. And for people who, in particular, don't live in areas which have borne the brunt of this increasing rate of a very particular kind of violence, serious youth violence, it reassures them that something is being done. You used the, the term serious youth violence there. But again, I was reading some of your work, and you make a very good point on life crime specifically, that if we're having this conversation, we need to look at domestic violence as well. 100%. Um, so I was looking through the data and a bladed weapon is used in roughly half of all spousal murders or intimate partner murders uh, in England and Wales. And the way in which the word knife crime is used, it's a very particular form of knife crime. It usually refers to serious youth violence because then you have a conversation about how do you police public space? You're not thinking about the way in which creating conditions of economic immiseration deepens intimate partner violence and makes family dysfunction a lot more common. And how do we get that to come across? As you point out, we live in a headline world where unless it's addressed in just these block capitals on the front page, that starts a conversation without that. I mean, the good thing about social media is that you can create moments which go viral and maybe it happens one time and you don't know if that's going to be the thing that kicks off. Uh, the second time I was on Question Time, there was a question about knife crime. And I used it as an opportunity to not just talk about the public health model approach to uh, knife crime, but to say we all know that this is the way to deal with it and none of us are doing anything. And because at the moment of confrontation, the clip went viral. So there are things you can do to try and get that message out there by presenting it as a, as a moment of confrontation with a dominant discourse. And, you know, producers, they're kind of like poodles. They're like, oh, it makes good telly. Like, you know, they'll clip it and they'll put it out there. Um, so I think you can do that kind of thing. 
But I think that this is also an area where you do need leadership from the Labour Party and you do need leadership from the left. And it is a travesty that it's not happened in the way that it should. Yeah, going back to that point, actually, on Labour and the left, of the fact they've not grasped this little and done much about it, do you think there's much hope for the future that we can get this on the agenda so we can make sure that people are addressing this and that this does become policy? Yeah, absolutely. And what we saw this year with Labour for a Green New Deal, Labour for the abolition of private schools, known as Abolish Eton, and some other issues as well, including a four-day week, is that it's possible to seize the policy-making agenda if you put the time and the effort into developing grassroots campaigns. Now, traditionally around issues of policing, there is a lot of mistrust from grassroots policing organizations towards the Labour Party for very good reasons that they look at that new Labour era defined by ASBOs and the sort of you know criminalization of uh, working class communities of color in particular and they say you know you lot will always revert back to type and so I really do understand that mistrust however that's the best vehicle you have available to you for transformative change. And I think that you do then have to engage with the way uh, Labour has opened up a pathway and a route to changing legislation. Um, you know, it's a historic opportunity. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As, as I've just said, we're discussing this just as party conferences are going on. We've just had a conservative one as we're speaking. They're talking about ramping up county lines, crackdowns and all these sort of things. Do they believe in this or is it just that they are out there to grab the headlines and to look tough on criminal justice because it, it's what they think is the, the vote winner? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got it in one. You know, it looks tough. It appeals to their voter base which is home counties radicalized pensioners who are consumed by a sense of national decline you know it's that whole this country's gone to the dogs feeling and so you need snappy embodiments of that national decline and county lines being one of them is something which i hear uttered again and again by people who've not got the first idea of what it means you know, so you hear Pretty Patel talking about taking down county lines kingpins. Like, maybe her speechwriter had been watching Top Boy, but it's not as if, you know, the kingpins of the drug trade are the ones, you know, running young people on county lines. Usually it's people who aren't that much older than the same kids that are being exploited. You know, your real drugs kingpins probably own shares in major financial institutions. You want to talk about 
you know, drugs money and kingpins. Look at HSBC, you know, but you don't want to take on your friends in the cities. You don't want to take on, you know, property developers or people who've got assets which are registered out in the Cayman Islands or Panama because those are your mates. Those are the real kingpins. It's a pretty good point that a lot of people's education is through Netflix and, and certain programs. And we have this position there. You're thinking you're going after the top dog, as you said, but a lot of times, again, I don't want to use the phrase, but we are going for low-hanging fruit where the people that are vulnerable are getting in the most trouble and damage because of the policies that we've currently got. And it's, don't get me wrong, I love Top Boy, I love Kano, I love Asha D, but it's not a documentary, guys. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good point. <laughs> it really is. Um, briefly, in this, in this, not briefly, but because I, I, I kind of really want to go, get into this because I, I've spoken to Tez Ilias on this recently. But connected to county lies and knife crime, bizarrely, is chicken boxes. Somehow this fits in there. Where, all right, where do we start on this? <laughs> I mean, again, you've got to think about who the target audience is. The target audience isn't actually the communities who are being affected by it. The target audience is disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, right? Because when I was like, this is ridiculous and it's insulting. And you also want to look at the coded racial imagery there. Like you're not as slick as you think you are. Suddenly my mentions are full of like really angry white men who aren't even in public very often. They're the kind of people who spend, you know, a lot of time either in their car or in the office or at home. So I don't know what streets they're talking about when they're saying it's not safe on these streets. You know, like St. Albans is fine, calm down. Um, is that you've got all of these people going, well, at least they're trying to do something, right? And so that's it. It's just spectacle. It's just spectacle. It's just a way of looking to people who don't really have a deep connection with what's going on, of looking to them as though you're talking to the right sort of people because you've performed it via an avatar of racial and class identity, right? Which is fried chicken. So, you know, it's, it's gammon talking to gammon, right? <laughs> what a good quote that is in regards to chicken boxes. And I think you're right that uh, just about your point, because like, you mentioned Tunbridge Wells, it's a place I know well, you know, mm -hmm. coming from Kent, it's it's right there for me. And the conversations that they have there are so, so different to what goes on here. It's It really is. And I think that it's fair to say that people are disconnected. So when, you, as you say, people saw the chicken boxes come up, it was a position people went, oh, yeah, well, at least it's being tried. But it wasn't evidence-based, was it? It was just plucked out of the air, pun, pun. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe good. I did. That wasn't, that wasn't deliberate for the, for the listeners. Uh, but it he was. was actually reading from notes at that point. <laughs> yeah. You can't see it. But... Yeah, just kind of highlighted, plucked. <laughs> but it, it's so bizarre that they, they just wheeled this out there on, on a wing. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's so shallow. It's so, so shallow. And it's because no one wants to have the deeper conversation because when you try and talk about social workers, then you've got that whole lefty, lovey, touchy-feely, you know, oh, well, you just want us all to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, right? You know, it doesn't appeal to, you know, that real mood of hang and flog and which still exists in this country. Um, so the thing is, is yes, it's the conservatives grabbing headlines and, you know, uh, just saying whatever it takes to, you know, capture the attention of the news cycle. But it's also effective because there is a mood of very deep reaction in this country. Um, you compare, so I uh, live and work part-time in Amsterdam because that's where I teach. I'm probably the only person in Amsterdam who doesn't regularly take drugs because I'm too scared of bumping into my students. Um, but the culture of talking about drugs in particular in Amsterdam is completely different because the law is different. And it means that because the law is different, you've got a different uh, approach, which is sort of instinctive uh, amongst the electorate as well. So, you know, not to go back to the terrible fun, but it's a sort of chicken and egg scenario, which is, you know, the culture of the electorate and the culture which is set by those in power. Um, at some point, someone's got to be brave. I can't believe we've got three chicken puns in this. Just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I'm going to need to think lovers now. But the international perspective is interesting because, as you said, once once the tipping point is there, happened in Portugal, it's happening in Amsterdam, it's happening in Canada and other places, and quite a few states across the America. That once 
it goes, it tends to go quickly. Do you think we're going to get anything from the international perspective? Well, I think that it's highly likely you're going to see the legalization of weed and perhaps you might have decriminalization of other drugs as well. Maybe, and I hope this is the case, you'll have the ass backwards classing system, uh, you know, turned inside out and turned on its head. But that doesn't actually mean you'll end up with something that looks like justice. And you can see the way in which the legalization of weed is being pushed by big pharma and also big tobacco, in particular Philip Morris. You can end up with a situation where drugs have been legalized or some drugs have been legalized and the damage left behind by the criminalization of working class communities of color still endures and those social problems still endure. Um, so I think that you'd have to look quite seriously at measures pursued the way they have in Oakland, which is licensing, which prioritizes people who've been incarcerated for uh, possession with intent to supply of previously controlled substances. But I think you also have to look at then the production of drugs as well. So not just in terms of who distributes in this country, but who makes stuff and what happens to those countries where drugs are made and produced. So to me, it's not necessarily the case that drugs was the reason for the point of intervention, uh, particularly in Afghanistan. Uh, but it's no coincidence to me that uh, when you look at places which have been responsible for the production of drugs, in particular, uh, Colombia, which effectively had its constitution rewritten by horrible American neoliberals uh, as part of the war on drugs, also Afghanistan when it comes to heroin production, uh, that these have been areas which have suffered for decades because of American imperialism. And so you also then, ha I think, have to look at drugs within a context of uh, changing geopolitics and the balance of both military and economic power. And so then you look at the way in which the war on drugs was never just a metaphor for domestic policing, it was also you know, a real war. Um, because you had the case where drugs money was enriching financial institutions in Europe and America and Wall Street. Uh, you had a hugely lucrative arms trade, which was then financing endless wars on indigenous and working class and peasant communities in Latin America and also in the Middle East for producing the drugs which are mostly then consumed in Europe and America anyway. So, you know, you've got this, you know, cycle of dirty money um, and blood money, which isn't just about, you know, the illicit drugs trade or illegality. It's also the dirty money of how the drugs trade has been policed. This is so, it's something we're trying to address at the moment is... We need to think in terms of when cannabis is legalised as opposed to if. And when we're speaking to Neve Eastwood just before we started recording, we're all working on social equity to make sure that, that the demographics that have been harmed have a place in the new industry. And this is two quick, quick cheap plugs, which I'm sure listeners of this will be bored of by now. But I wrote an article for Vice, uh, which looks at Massachusetts model on, on social equity. And... At the time of recording this, I don't know when this episode will go out, but tomorrow's episode of this podcast will be with Transform Drug Policy Foundation with the Cannabis Control Commissioner in Massachusetts, along with Sonia Tree, who is the fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and Catherine Lederberg, who was one of the key figures in making sure that the Bolivian coca farmers had uh, had a right to grow coca. So that would be tomorrow's episode, which is basically social justice. Um, so all those plugs out of the way. And I'll need to think of another chicken pun somewhere. <laughs> but uh, how important is it that we now turn our attention to social justice and social equity to make sure that the demographics that have been harmed get some way of making some money out of this, surely? Hugely important because, you know... You know, I make lots of jokes about waviness and essentially recreational uh, use of drugs, but this is the difference between my politics and the politics of something like the Psychedelic Society. I arrived at wanting to decriminalise drugs, not because 
I wanted to go to Creamfields, but because I saw the damage of mass incarceration on working class communities. And I saw firsthand the, the complete decimation of families because someone's been dragged through the criminal justice system. And so for me, that's the starting point and that's the end point. And so unless you've got, uh, you know, social equity front and center, it is just a middle-class hedonistic project. And there's no point in doing that anyway, because drugs are de facto decriminalized for you anyway. Is this another grassroots movement what we need? You, you mentioned there's already big money involved in this, and, and I can certainly attest that there is. And this is something we're really concerned about is how do we make sure that this is a bottom-up sense of reform as opposed to a top-down? Is it Do we need more people on the ground and having these conversations? You need more people on the ground, you need more public conversations, and then you also need to do this. I call it the within, against, and against structure. So within is within the Labour Party. So you identify key figures who you want to apply pressure to. Then you've got the immediate against, which is people who are Labour Party aligned, who are pursuing measures to get something to the top of the policy agenda very, very quickly, right? So they're squeezing the toes of those people who are within the Labour Party. That's your first against. And then you've got the against against, which is the people who are completely outside of the Labour Party structure, who certainly aren't front benchers, who aren't front bench advisors, and then also aren't part of this sort of, um, you know, uh, productive but adversarial relationship which I've just identified who are the radical edge of the demand and I think you've seen it very well with this Labour for a Green New Deal stuff because you've had the within which is you know your Rebecca Long Bailey and your Ed Miliband who are like very green but needed to be essentially uh, kicked up the arse by 128 CLPs who passed a very radical motion and who fought tooth and nail for that motion to make it to the conference floor. And then you had the against against, which is like Extinction Rebellion and Wretched of the Earth, who are just like, we're going to keep doing some mad shit until we get what we want. And so that's had a really positive effect on what Labour Party policy is. And so I think in terms of your listeners, you've got to identify where you are. Are you within? Are you first against? Are you second against? But all three can work together to achieve the aim, the aim that you want. You've just got to really mean it. So you lead just a, a, a complete multifaceted approach with everybody doing their job to mm -hmm. make sure that we just, again, open up this conversation. Everyone on job. Because you know what? Everyone at Philip Morris is on job. Yes. Like big money's yeah. already working on it. So if you want to have the best critique in the world, do nothing with it and then be correct when everything goes bad, do nothing. Continue doing what you're doing. Do nothing. If you want to have the best critique in the world and you want to see some of it actually implemented, you then have to start working with people whose aims are slightly different from your own and make sure that your aim wins out. How much does social media play a part in that? Is it, is it a force for good or can it be, you know, you could get a little bit kind of intransient because you feel like you're doing something? I mean, that's the thing. Uh, social media is a tool. It's not the end. And so you've got to think about what you're using it as a tool for. Um, if you are using it as a, as a tool to exclude and to police and to police the lines of radicalism, then yes, it is toxic for movement building. But if you're using it as a tool to bring people in and to educate, to inform and to organize, to mobilize, then great. But, you know, it's like the printing press, right? There's tons of shit books out there, but it doesn't mean, you know, throw the baby out of the bottle of water. Like... That's, that's a perfect example, actually, because a lot of times social media does get a bad rap, doesn't it? But, mm -hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd be lost about it because of the various different things that we've done. Yeah, and a lot of our movement is based on social media and it's, and it's certainly had a positive effect. And you can also um, experiment, like, from just from a purely, like, uh, political communications perspective you can experiment with lines and what works and framings and that's so true you know to have that space to experiment is to keep communicating to communicate badly and then communicate a bit better is really good for social movements and, and in many ways that's what's been done with mental health because mm. we, we've now got that on the agenda it seems to be that we've all got a point of discussion on that and do you, I, presume, I goes about saying you think presumably that's a good thing mm -hmm. Um, what... No, 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 definitely more more <laughs> repression, secrecy and misery. <laughs> yes, damn it, we're, we're British. <laughs> we're back, to... back in the closet, <laughs> just go. 
but I think we're we're at the point where thankfully we're we're open about it and we can make sure that people aren't suffering in silence. And this plays a massive part. You were saying about this before we went on air that mental health plays such a part in the drug policy conversation, in the incarceration, rehabilitation, just generally, doesn't it? 100%. And so that's the thing is that this is also where I differ from like, you know, the psychedelic society lot. And that's not no shade to them, but it's just there are differences in our politics. As I've seen firsthand how problematic use of psychoactive substances has been a substitute for mental health care. And there are lots of reasons for that. It's the inaccessibility of services or it's the fact that anything which is state provided is looked at with a reasonable amount of suspicion because your experiences of the police or perhaps social services have been so negative. It means that you don't want to seek mental health care because you might have very legitimate worries about what that would mean for the state coming to like, you know, fuck up your home life, basically. And I've seen, and then I think there are also things to do with uh, masculinity and cultural expectations of how you deal with trauma. And when you've got all of those, you know, um, social forces happening, like, you know, in concert with one another, then drugs come in. And that's where, you know, there is such thing as problematic use of psychoactive substances, uh, where it makes problems worse for people. And it's not the fault of the drugs in itself is because of the alignment of these social forces and all of those things need dealing with all right so i think i've got to start wrapping up now because i could speak to you for hours genuinely because it's just it's just so fascinating when you got someone that's just so eloquent on these subjects well thank you for having me but just to kind of finish off i'm going to put you on the spot so your prime minister we need to sort all this out we've addressed because it's all interlinked somewhere along Mm -hmm. the line where'd you start I would get rid of prison sentences for non-violent offences and for financial crimes below a certain value. Um, Because I do actually think that some bankers deserve to be in prison. Uh, But that's how I would start, you know, decarcerating society. Would decriminalize drugs and pour tax revenue into mental health services and addiction support and I would basically double if I could the children's social care budget and so that would be the place for early intervention for where you do have like quite serious family dysfunction And you've got families who have been traumatized through the criminal justice system and also the care system to give them the support to, you know, really be uh, that sort of first port of call for supporting people who are in trouble. So your family should be able to support you. And in order for families to be able to do that, you do need the state to support those families. That's a perfect answer. I, I think that's a really good place to wrap up on. And I can't thank you so much, Ash, for being on here. Thank you for having and me. And putting up with my cold as well, because I, I hope that being in this enclosed environment doesn't mean you're going to get it. I, I, no, um, my boyfriend has been like spiking my like water bottle with echinacea every morning. Oh, right, yeah. Like, so he basically, and it tastes disgusting. So my first like bottle of water of the day, I'm like, oh, it's echinacea, disgusting. <laughs> See, it sounds like a drug in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it is, right? So, I mean, I've just been like, my drink gets spiked every morning by my partner, but it's echinacea. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Ash, for being absolutely amazing on that podcast. Yeah, you couldn't have nailed it more. And thank you so much. If you want to follow her on Twitter, AOCaesar, please do. And if you want to follow what Law Enforcement Action Partnership does, then it's at UKLeap on Twitter and Instagram and UKLeap.org on Facebook and our website. And a few thank yous. Thank you for Release, uh, the organisation who does so much for drug law reform and race relations and stop and search and addressing everything that goes on within that. We record a lot within their offices, so thank you so much for hosting us. Thank you to Tristan, Nikki and John, the producers of this show. Thank you to My Name is Ashley Artwork and Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. Thank you for listening and subscribing and please do, please do share this episode and all the other ones that are relevant to these themes. And on that note, we're going to set up for the next topic and yeah, let's hope that we're going to keep coming back and addressing the themes that we've just addressed in this one because we so, so need to. Thank you so much, Ash, again. Bye. Behind your barricades.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.